Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We have a sermon series to conclude today. For those of you who are looking at the clock and you're doing the math and you're getting nervous, I do plan on dialing it back time-wise a little bit today, but we, um, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, as always, feel free to follow along with us in a blue pew Bible. Philippians 4 will be on page 982. There's a website, uh, perhaps you've heard of it, called the Joshua Project, and it tracks people groups across the globe and um, the rate at which we are and the church is reaching people groups across the world with the gospel. And it counts 17,094 people groups in the world today. A people group is defined as a subset of a population in which there are barriers of understanding or acceptance. It's often language, but not just language. Many, a nation can have many different ty- kinds of people groups, um, but it's not like North Jersey people group, South Jersey people group, right? And then the Central Jersey people group that doesn't exist because Central Jersey doesn't exist. We'll fight about that later. But, but these are um, people groups that have a certain sense of cultural norms, traditions, that there is a barrier to uh, get involved with this group, barriers of understanding or acceptance, And of 17,094 globally, Joshua Project says 7,165 are still unreached when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unreached doesn't necessarily mean they've never heard the gospel, but unreached means there are not enough followers of Christ in that people group to evangelize their own people. So technically speaking, if under 2% of a people group identifies as a Christian, they are considered unreached. So 41% of all the people groups in the world, unreached, accounting for roughly 3.19 billion people. And you go through this website, and you look at all these numbers, and you start thinking about these numbers, and it can be very overwhelming very quickly. And the question can eventually boil down to, like, what could I possibly do to make any difference with that? How can we boil that down What's the way forward? Well, our final passage in the book of Philippians, it's week 10 of our 10-week series. Paul gets to the end, and he's not just saying thank you to this church and giving some final greetings. Although, often, if we're honest, as we read these letters, we get to that kind of ending, and we start skimming, right? Oh, he's just saying thank you to these guys. He's just saying, you know, catching up, I'll see you later, bye. And we go to whatever the next, and we skip it. But... We're going to find this morning, these verses are far more relevant than we realize, and these final words from Paul provide the fuel to set ablaze the flame of missions within the local church. And that is so needed because God's design, I didn't pay Daniel to say that right before the sermon, but his design is to make disciples of all nations, and the engine through which global missions runs is the local church. Andy Johnson, the author of a little book uh, of the, uh, that's part of a Nine Marks Building Healthy Churches series, it's called Missions. He says this, quote, the primary mission of missions is calling and discipling all the peoples saved by the Lamb. This is the most fundamental objective and joy towards which we labor. I, I love that phrase for us here at Grace Church, a joy toward which we labor to make the gospel known in a way that we live, yes, in the way that we speak, in the way that we interact with a broken world that needs to hear that Jesus is the answer. 
that we're not the answer, the way we do church, we're not the answer, don't look at us, we're as broken as they are, Jesus is the answer. God loves them, and, and, and the objective evidence of his love is sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. This is the good news that makes disciples. This is the primary mission of missions. And it's not our burden to play a part in this. It's our blessing. And this passage is going to give us assurance to missionally-minded, generous churches. So we're going to read Philippians in chapter 4. Um, we're going to really be picking it up in verse 14, but I want to start in verse 10 just to provide the context because it's kind of verse 14 starts kind of mid-thought. We preached on verses 11 through 13 last week, but we'll read them again in this passage. So verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Preached on that last week. Verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God and Father to be glory forever and ever. Amen. To set the context for those who maybe haven't been here for this entire series, Paul is writing this letter from a prison. And he's writing from the city of Rome, which is 800 miles away from the church that he's writing to in a city called Philippi. It's kind of a big town. It's not even a city. And it's in the region of Macedonia. It was during Paul's second missionary journey, as recorded in Acts chapter 16. This church in Philippi was the first time the gospel went to the continent of Europe from Asia. This church may very well be the first church ever in Europe. And this letter he's writing is about 10 years after it first began. And it's Paul's by far most affectionate letter that he writes amongst the ones we have in the Bible. Like he just loves these people. And he is super encouraged by the um, reports he has heard about them. And, And all throughout this letter, his aim is to give assurance in Christ to give assurance in Christ to persevere through an anxious time in the early church. Which is why I think we have all loved this letter so much. Because 2,000 years later, what's our greatest need? Assurance in Christ in an anxious world. Assurance that we can stand in the truth. Have a reason for the hope we believe. Know why we're believers. And still love a world that might not and will not love us back. Assurance that stands against the tidal wave of being misunderstood, and yet with our feet on the rock, battered and beaten, still pointing towards him. So here at the very end, he communicates his gratitude for them, specifically for their generosity in general, and their generosity toward him as a church planting missionary in particular. And so this passage highlights the benefit of generosity 
in a local church and how it makes a global impact. In three ways in particular, I'm going to start talking faster. Number one, (laughs) generosity in the local church is evidence of spiritual health. Verse 14, I love the way Paul puts it. He says to the church, it was kind of you to share my trouble. It was kind of them to be partakers in the work of global gospel ministry. And we have to do some work here because kind in our language today is such a kind of weak word, isn't it? We kind of use it like as a synonym just for polite. Kind is saying please. And kind is saying thank you. And kind is saying hello to a stranger. And kind is opening the door for someone. You know, our oldest son, Caden, uh, five years old, he, he figured out in this last year at preschool that people really like it when he opens the door for them, right? And he, uh, he eats it up. An adult, you know, will come in. There's like a single door going into their preschool, and they'll just go, look at you, such a gentleman. And it's like, that's like sugar for Caden, right? Like, he just loves it. And so he has now self-identified himself as the doorman. <laughs> like, if there's anyone within 100 feet He's waiting to find out if they're coming his direction. Like, he's just staying there to the point where I'm stuck, all right? So I'm like, okay, bud, it's time to go. And he'll be like, nope. He'll be like, I see footsteps. I think they might be coming this way. And it's genius by him because he's backed me into a corner. Because now I'm a father telling his son, do not hold that door any longer. Like, this is terrible to the point where I'm like threatening dessert at dinner if he keeps holding the door for more people. Like, how did it come to this? Like, parenting's hard. Lord, help me. Need help. But like, this is, this is the way we view kind, right? Like, it's, it's kind. You do kind things. But in reality, I think the real definition, certainly in the Bible, kind is a radical, ferocious display of love. I know I've shared this quote in a sermon before, but it fits so well, I need to share it again. Karen Swallow Pryor, in her book on reading well, it'll be on the screen. Kind comes from the same root word, same root from which we get the word kin. To be kind, then, is to treat someone like they are family. To possess the virtue of kindness is to be in the habit of treating all people as if they were family. This is kind. And kindness, this ferocious family love, is being shown by the church at Philippi through generosity in supplying him with provisional needs that will better assist him in the work of doing gospel ministry. And and this generosity toward him, it's almost more of a reflection on them than it is him. Like, it's a sign of health overall. Because there is no such thing as a healthy church That is not generous toward the work of investing in gospel ministry. And this is important. We're not talking wealthy churches need to be generous. Because generosity is not contingent on wealth. It's not contingent on wealth. It's it's not just merely the responsibility of the rich to be generous. It's the responsibility, responsibility of believers. Which is to say this. Generosity is a discipleship issue. It exposes either a maturity or immaturity in the faith. It's not based on socioeconomic status. If you still have your Bibles open, try and flip to 2 Corinthians 8. I want you to see this. It will also be on the screen. Paul here is writing to a church in Corinth. 
but he's talking about the churches in Macedonia, of which Philippi was the first. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty as, has, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Philippi was not just involved in helping Paul. They were begging Paul to take part in being able to give relief to other churches they were hearing about in the Roman Empire that were in need. And giving beyond their means. Not because they were rich, because Paul just told us they were in extreme poverty. This was a poor church. But they're begging to play a part in giving so they can play a part in God's work across the world. It's a picture of a financially poor church that is generous because of their abundance of joy. Generosity is not about money. It's about joy. It's not about the total amount. It's about the amount of sacrifice. And Christians are, by their nature of being Christians, a generous people, generous with their time, generous with their talent to build up the body and others, and yes, generous with their treasure, even if it feels like in your life there's no treasure at all. And here's one thing I needed to come to terms with when I was a young adult. There is no such thing as a mature, non-generous Christian. And, and Paul, all throughout the letters, he always feared of being accused of being manipulative, Time and again in the New Testament, especially in Corinth, he would not receive money from them because he knows there was rumors swirling around that he was just in it for the money. No one ever goes in ministry for the money. But, he, but there was rumors that, man, he's just, he's just in it, man. And he, he, this is just his way of just building his own bank account. And so he says, whatever, I won't take it. I got other churches that are helping me. And, and I can resonate with that for, to a degree because I'm not great talking about money. I kind of hate it. I've been preaching here for four years. You can probably count on one hand the amount of times I've talked about money in a sermon. But one thing I've had to just explore in my own heart is that by not talking about generosity, I am stunting our growth as a church because it's a discipleship issue. And I've shared before that um, young adult, uh, generosity was a massive issue for me. It exposed a deeply rooted idolatry of money in my life and the immaturity of my faith. And God used various means, mainly a generous wife, to break that idol in my life. And it's truly more joyful to be generous. Because it shows money doesn't control us. And maturity in the faith is, is this shift from the question of how much do I have to give to how much can I give? And that shift happens only when we see generosity through the lens of Jesus Christ and not through the lens of money. You don't become more generous by beating yourself up or being beat up by others that you need to be more generous. You need to give more. You become more generous when you focus more deeply on the truth of the gospel and the world's need to hear Christ. So, so hang with me here. When, when we focus on money, we ask the question, how much do I have to give? When we focus on Christ and making disciples, the question changes to how much can I give? Can I play a part in this? 
And there is so much freedom and joy for a soul when that shift happens. And that's true individually, and it's true of a church who together is wanting to be invested in kingdom building work, which leads to number two. Generosity in the local church fuels the global work of making disciples. Back to Philippians 4, Paul is recounting how this is not the first time he himself was blessed as a missionary by the church of Philippi. If you remember back in Acts chapter 16, um, shortly after Paul planted this church, he got driven out of that city because everyone was freaking out at all the supernatural things that were happening. There was exorcisms, there was earthquakes that was setting prisoners free, and they were just like, dude, get out. And they pushed him out, but the small little church was planted behind him. From Philippi, he went on to a different city, and out of their deep love for Paul, this small, fledgling church sent people to that city to ask, hey, do you need anything? How can we help you? They found out Paul was in need. They take an offering, and they send it to him. And then later, he gets to a city called Athens, and some were with him, went back to Macedonia, and based on that conversation, the city of Philippi starts sending out leaders already to go meet up with him in Corinth. That, that missions is not just sending money, it's sending people. And in that letter, he says, listen, these saints in Macedonia, they are taking care of me. And now, near the end of his life in Rome, the church sends one of their most trusted members, Epaphroditus, on an 800-mile trek where he nearly dies to supply Paul once again. And to this, he recounts their long-term partnership. And he says to give them encouragement, to give them insurance. Guys, I am well supplied. In fact, I now have more than I need. And I am pleased. But more importantly, this is pleasing to the Lord. That the Philippian church took it upon themselves in a small inland town to be invested in the work of making disciples globally. They saw themselves as a local church having a global impact. And they gave and they supported missions, not because they were overflowing with money, but because they were overflowing with a heart for the gospel and wanting to see people come to Christ. This is why a church that is driven by and transformed by the gospel zealously seeks out partners to do gospel global ministry with. Which is why five times in this letter, Paul is referring to them, this body of believers, partners in the gospel, partakers in the gospel, their fellowship in the gospel, fellow workers in the gospels, men and women. And, and a local church's involvement in global missions is not at the expense of their own ministry. It's an addition to it. This is important. Th think about a family in town. And let's say the parents of this family were so gung-ho about feeding the poor in their community or the communities around them. And, and they were so known for just investing in providing food for the homeless. But then they'd come back at night and their own kids were starving. You'd say, that doesn't really make sense. If feeding others was at the expense of their own children, we would say, that's not right. But they are called to provide for their own family first but hear me, this is important. Part of that provision is teaching those kids, guys, as a family, we're going to have our eyes on others, as God allows us to. That it's not just about us. We're going to take care of us. But part of growing those children is showing that we're going to care about others. That's a healthy family. And it's the same for a church. We're going to take care of the ministry God's called us here, and we're going to build one another up in the faith, and we're going to invest in one another. But part of our discipleship of one another is telling one another, we've got to get eyes off ourselves. 
This is not just about us. So at Grace Church, currently 22% of our budget is dedicated towards missions. 22% of the money we bring in, we send right back out via partnerships. There's 21 partnerships with families and agencies that we want people to be generous and we call you to be generous in your giving to Grace Church as a discipleship issue and that we as a church want to reflect that generosity in giving towards the work of global missions to others. We'd be hypocritical if we were just keeping it all here. And in this way, we are walking in obedience to the path that God has called before us. And listen, there's no set number you have to do There's a biblical number, 10% out there, like the tithing number. I believe that was mandated in the Old Testament. I don't think it's mandated in the New Testament, individually and also as a church. But hear me, this is where it gets hard. This is hard to say. I don't think the 10% tithe is binding in the New Testament, not because you don't have to give that much, but that you don't have to stop there. Jesus in the New Covenant never lowers the bar from the Old Covenant. He always raises it. And so it is with our generosity um, that we want to stretch ourselves for the going of the gospel. We want to do that individually when we give towards the church. We want to do that as a church as we give towards missions. And so the question comes down to it, that when it comes to giving, are you stretching yourself? When it comes to giving, is our church stretching ourselves, not foolishly, not unwisely, but in a way that glorifies God And ultimately, for us not to feel shame over this, but just to say, what can I do? What can I test God in this? And a blessing that you get from giving is not always financial. This is not prosperity gospel. This is not you give 10,000, God's going to give you a check for 20,000 next week. If that happens, awesome. And then tithe on that, all right? (laughs) But it will certainly multiply the impact and the blessing of making disciples across the world. And the global impact of making true disciples will be fueled by the engine of the local church. Number three, generosity in the local church grants assurance for the givers. This is our last week in Philippians. I already missed it and it's not even over yet. But Paul's theme all throughout this letter, physically, spiritually, emotionally, is to give assurance in Christ in the midst of an anxious age. And there are more quotable one-liners in Philippians than probably any other book in the Bible, which is amazing because it's four chapters. But think about all these lines we've seen in the last 10 weeks. Quote, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain. You have the Jesus creed that out of his great love and humility, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself being born in the likeness of men. And there's more and there's more. There's so many gems in Philippians, but I think the best one might be in this passage. Verse 19, let me read it again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And this promise is good any way you say it or look at it, but understand in context, He's saying this on the heels of giving assurance to a church for their generosity. That for those who supply for the needs of others in Christ will have their needs in Christ supplied to them. And God knows that the blessing experienced by somebody giving is usually exceeds the blessing received by the one who received it. Jesus himself said, it's better to give than to receive. Why? 
because of this promise. Because God will supply every need of yours and riches to the glory in Christ Jesus. And again, this promise gets hijacked by prosperity gospels everywhere. If you give abundantly, he will supply every need of yours financially. And that might be true. But to limit it to that is to cheapen it of its promise. God will, not, God will give us all we need. Not all we want in greed. And what we need more than anything else is assurance. Assurance in Christ that no amount of money can buy. And when we receive this assurance, we are empowered to make an impact in this world, to use our meager means, a little church in Ridgewood, New Jersey, to do a platform for global good. And in this transaction, God gets the glory, we get the joy. And for those of us who are feeling just so consumed this morning, so down for whatever number of reasons, there's a pit in your stomach, there's a life situation that's just eating away at you, this is your promise to feed on the promises of God, that you belong to a God who supplies. And he will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. You know, um, when we, he he uses all these economic terms to convey like spiritual promises. And he says, um, he says, according to his riches, not from his riches. Here's the difference. If I had a million dollars and I gave you a check for a hundred, that's giving to you from my riches. But if I give you a blank check and I say, you fill it out, whatever you need, that's giving according to my riches. And every person on this earth has a limit to which they can give. There's a number we can't commit to, but the only being that can truly give according to their riches is the one without limit, God himself, that we will never exhaust him that we will never, he will never not be able to supply our greatest needs, our needs of forgiveness and of assurance and faith, a promise of eternal future and joy in him. These are our greatest needs, and they're offered to us in Christ. All right, we're going to read the final three verses. I'm going to make one comment, and then we're going to close with our last song. The final verses of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. One comment, and I never pieced this together until preparing this sermon. Paul slipped a phrase in there that he doesn't slip in in a lot of the other places. And I think it's a phrase that often overlooked, but made the church at Philippi, when they first read it, explode with joy. And the phrase is, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul, through a series of imprisonments under regional leadership in Jerusalem and then in Judea, eventually gets shipped to Rome because he's a Roman citizen and he wants to appeal to Caesar. But he's not staying in Caesar's home. He's a prisoner, but even Paul, the prisoner, is still a missionary. For someone who is truly on fire for Christ will be on fire for Christ no matter where you put them. And Paul had a group of soldiers assigned to him full-time that traveled him throughout, soldiers that undoubtedly heard the gospel from him, 
And these soldiers, along with others in Rome, must have had some level of contact with, the, contact with the servants within Caesar's household. And apparently, some of these servants have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, for Paul is saying, all the saints here in Rome greet you, comma, especially those in Caesar's household. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, take heart, Philippi. Be assured, church, the gospel's going out. And what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. We've gotten into Caesar's house with the gospel. The leader of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world, church, he will do what he has set out to do. And he will use local churches like Philippi, like Grace Church, to make a global impact. This is the invitation we have before us. This is the promise that we cling to. Be assured, church. And we close our series with this from Philippians chapter 2 that Pastor Jeff already quoted in our service today. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's pray.